All right, everyone. Whoa. Feedback. I should turn that off, huh? There we go. Better? All right. Sorry about that. Uh, I had to... Uh, Beverly was going to be here for the stream, but I'm managing some stuff myself. So, uh, howdy. Welcome. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space, which is a show that I, Carter, do every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. And uh, and here you are. Today's December 1st. I can't believe it's December already, but it is. Pirate Tomsky warns me to not do it again. All right, Pirate Tomsky. I'll stop apologizing. I'll just improve. Um, as a reminder, uh, give some of that leftover gravy from Thanksgiving to the subscribe button. The more subscribers we have, uh, you know, theoretically, the better we do on YouTube. It depends, depends how Susan's feeling. You can watch us at unsafespace.com and on Utreon and on Odyssey uh, and, and on YouTube. So shout out to everyone who financially supports the show. Thank you guys who are subscribers. Couldn't do this without you. Um, really, really appreciate it. You do, if you subscribe, you get your name in the credits. If you're, at, I think, apostate level or above. Oh, no. Uh, wrong thinker or above. I don't know. Some level or above, like five bucks a month or above, you get your name in the credits. Uh, and if you're an apostate level or above, you get a grenade mug, which is behind me on the shelf back there. Uh, if you want a grenade mug and you're planning to give it away as a gift for Christmas, do your subscription now because I'm probably going to do a batch next week to try and get stuff out before Christmas to people. So now's a good time. Uh, yeah, you can find everything you need at unsafespace.com. You can buy merch, support us, sign up for stuff, whatever. All right. Today's a little bit of a smorgasbord of a show. Uh, I want to talk about a few different things, but um, before we start, I just want to note, uh, apparently now Alec Baldwin is on George Stephanopoulos' show on ABC or whatever, crying, crying about how he, no one pulled the trigger. He didn't pull the trigger. No one pulled the trigger. He found the one gun in the universe, which is a magical gun, which when he holds it, it fires on its own. No one pressed the trigger. Um, so I think we we are allowed, since they mocked Kyle Rittenhouse's, quote, crocodile tears, and all you hear is mocking of anyone expressing emotion from the right, I think it's completely acceptable to mock uh, Alec Baldwin for sobbing on George Stephanopoulos for the fact that he's a fucking murderer. Uh, he did pull the trigger. Guns don't go off by themselves. By the way, do you ever notice how whenever SUVs and guns are in the hands of leftists, they somehow magically have their own volition and do things? The gun just, the gun just did it. The gun just went off. The, the SUV just drove into a, a crowd of children and killed them. No one was involved. All right. That wasn't what I wanted to talk about today, though. I've got three things I want to talk about today. It is a, it's a little bit more of an, an odd show. Sometimes we do kind of more of a, almost like a classroom kind of thing. It's not really that. There's three topics I want to talk about today. One of them is Twitter. One of them is universities. And one of them is France. Um, so let's start. By the way, 
I apologize if you hear my daughter screaming in the background. She did just get her, uh, what's it called? Hepatitis B vaccination booster shot. She's not happy about it. I also apologize. I noticed there's a little bit of baby spit on my shoulder. So I'm that, that that's the kind of professional guy I am. So uh, Pirate Tomsky already gives us a super chat and correctly points out that guns don't kill people. Alec Baldwin does. Uh, but he got his name wrong, but I think it's fine to get his name wrong, Pirate Tomsky. You can say Alex Baldwin. He's not important enough to know the name of. All right, so let's talk about Twitter really quickly. And this is this should be fast because uh, for those of you who watched Kofefi Break, I can't tell how many people watch this and Kofefi Break. The Venn diagram of chat actually doesn't seem like it's completely overlapping. It seems like there's a difference, but maybe some people just chat more in one or the other. So I already talked about this a little bit on Monday's Kofefi Break, but I want to go... I want to do this for two reasons. One is I have a new camera thing I want to do just for fun, and I'm a nerd. Um, and two is I just want to make sure I've expressed this concept to people clearly. Um, so as you might know, Twitter has a new CEO, uh, Parag Agrawal. Uh, Jack Dorsey was apparently the free speech one. Uh, this guy is not. I've, I listened to some of his uh, listened to some of his interviews and that kind of stuff. And he said a bunch of things about First Amendment not being important, his goal is to have a healthy public conversation, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to read one quote. He says, we focus way less on what's true and what's false. I mean, that's not a shocker. We knew that. Um, we focus way more on potential for harm. And this is the this is what I brought up on Monday. And I, I brought up this concept of words as linguistic variables. I've also several times said the left uses words as magic spells, right? Um, they, they're like a series of syllables. Uh, I guess Mike Myers would say syllables. Uh, they're a series of syllables intended to change your behavior in some way, but they don't have a real connection to reality. There's not a correlation to, to concretes and concepts. And of course, that's only partially true, right? You can't 100% of the time, no one can 100% of the time, no matter how crazy they are or irrational, they can't 100% of the time use language as if it's just not connected to reality at all. At some point, they must accept that reality is around in order to survive, right? Or in order to communicate with other people. And in particular, with a company like Twitter or Facebook or any big tech, they have to at least make an effort. I mean, maybe they won't have to do this in the future, but at least right now, culture is such that they have to at least make uh, an effort to appear that their language corresponds to reality. Um, and they have to have a pretext of objective rules. It has to look like they're, we're following a process, right? Don't worry, it's objective. We're following a process. Uh, now, I think a lot of people see through that, obviously, uh, but but they at least have this pretext that they're following a process. Um, so if you are Twitter or some other social media giant with an agenda, the question becomes, how do you write a policy that is plausibly clear, right? Kind of maintains this pretext uh, of objectivity, but actually allows you to do whatever you want. And that was this concept of uh, linguistic variables that I introduced on Monday. I'm just going to do a quick thing here. Let's see. This is going to be fun. I'll try this. I don't know if it'll work. All right. What if we do? Yeah, you can see my desk. Oh, but you're supposed to see the other way around. Hold on. There's the desk. There's my hand. There's the desk. Cool. Why is it making me big? I want to be the small one. Stupid thing. All right, we'll just show. We'll just show the desk. I can't figure out how to make me in the small box and the desk in the big one. Okay. 
All right, so we're gonna do some. We're gonna do something here. This is just because I'm a dork and I wanted to test out having this camera down here. And I've learned that I can't control it very well, and it doesn't focus super well. But I can fix that. Okay, we'll use a sharpie. Sharpies will be better. Come on, camera, focus. No, it'll focus when I start drawing. Okay, so imagine this is for people who like math and programming. Okay. Uh, if you do math or programming, imagine you have a function. I'm just going to make a little box because I'm a nerd. You have a little function f, and you have a couple inputs. You have an input t. You don't control this input. And you've got another input. Let's say it's just the number 5 or whatever. Okay? And you get an output. The output is y. And y is a function of t and 5. Don't worry. This is not going to get too complex. Now, of course, if the function is plus, right, then it's just y is t plus 5. It's very simple. That's all it is. Now, t is out of your control here, um, which means, and 5 is obviously out of your control to set number. So y is out of your control. You're stuck with what whatever, whatever you get here. It's, you're always going to get t plus 5. t is out of your control. So that's not great. What if, what if instead you say, okay, well, I like the idea of a function and process here so people can see it. And I know I have to have this input t that I can't control. And I know I've got to have some stuff that looks like 5 up here. But why don't I just add, I'm going to add, I'm going to add a variable. I'm going to add a variable x. And now my output is a function of t and a function of 5 and a function of x. Okay, actually we can get rid of the 5, but let's not get into weird math. So if it's a plus, if this function is just a plus, again, it's uh, the function equals uh, t plus 5 plus x. That's very similar. But now you can control. You can't, you can't control this. No control. Uh, but you can control this. Sorry, my handwriting is horrible. Which means you can control this. So no matter what I make t, if I give you an input of 1,000, you can make y to be whatever you want. You can just pick the x after you know my t. You can pick the x to get the y that you want. So you, you're, you're in complete control of what the outcome is here. How does this relate to big tech? I know you can't possibly see where I'm going. So, um, okay, so they've got a function. They're trying to have a pretext of objectivity. Their function here is called, we'll call it apply uh, terms of service to tweets. That's the function. All right. And T, this is tweets. A tweet. A tweet comes in. That's one of the variables. And the other variable here is our terms of service, which are written in English. And you don't really have, you set these earlier. All right. So you don't have instantaneous control over those. You set those and told everyone. And you obviously have no control here. You don't know what I'm going to tweet. So your output here is fixed. It's a function of terms of service and what I've tweeted. Uh, so you have no control here. You have no control here, no control, no control, no control. Well, that's not good. If you're trying to push an agenda, this sucks. You can't have that. Um, so don't worry, you can fix it because no one, no one pays attention. So what you do to fix it you say, okay, well, I got this function. Got to have the function. I got the tweet. I don't control the tweet. Um, but 
just like we did with the math, instead of instead of this input, I'm gonna just being the terms of service, I'm gonna say it's the terms of service. Plus I'm gonna throw some variables in there. Maybe I'll mix them in the terms of service so it's all one big thing, but there's there's some variables. And now my output is a function of the tweet, a function of the term of service, and a function of this variable x. Now, obviously I have no control here. I have no control here, but I have full control. I can actually pick x after I've seen everything else, which means I have full control over the outcome. And this, this whole thing is what allows me to maintain my pretext of objectivity, right? Because I wait to see what you've tweeted. I take my terms of service and I apply whatever value I want to X. So what is X here? X is these linguistic variables. X is words like hurt or sorry, or harm. Harm was the word they used, harm. What does it mean? It means whatever the hell I want it to mean after I've seen what you've tweeted and how it will be applied to my terms of service such that I get the output that I want. And of course the output that I want, we both know is if you're a wrong thinker, you go to Twitter jail or get banned. That's the output I want. So that is the concept of linguistic variables. It's not that complicated. I know some of you are gonna think I went overboard with this. Uh, I know it's easy to just explain, but some people, believe it or not, some people are really bad at math. They don't even understand what variables are. They don't remember. That's okay. You don't have to know. I tried to explain it as best I could. All right. Uh, and Pirate Thompson is going to help us out here with a super chat that explains this very succinctly. The answer is we can make up our own shit and you can't do anything about it. That's exactly true. Pirate Tomsky is a programmer, so he understands exactly how that works. By the way, I missed a super chat. I'll fight you naked. It says interaction is better than live, obviously. Okay. Well, better live, obviously. I got it. I agree. Okay. So there we go. That is. That's the concept of the linguistic variables. When you hear Twitter talk about um, harm, uh, so here's some words. Harm, safety is another one. Um, when they talk about a healthy public conversation, that's a whole linguistic uh, variable phrase, right? What does it mean to be a healthy public conversation? By whose standards? Well, by radical Marxist leftist standards. That's, that's what they mean. What is safe? Safe by whose standards? Radical Marxist leftist standards. Uh, so thank you for indulging me and letting me use my little overhead camera thing. I'll get better at it. Sorry about that. I don't, I don't know what's going with the focus. So that's all I wanted to say about Twitter. I wanted to, uh, I want to go over that so that you guys can, can see it. Uh, I'm going to look in chat. I don't think anyone missed this. Uh, I don't think there's any other, I'm just looking to make sure everyone understands. There's no questions. Okay, good. Next time we play Pictionary, says Two Sisters and Some Yarn. I am a worse drawer of things than I am scribbler of text. Okay. The second thing I want to talk about is universities. Man. Whew. Okay. Let's talk about one of the more subtle ways in which institutions shape our beliefs. It's not super subtle, actually, but it's more subtle than overtly teaching Marxism and critical theory. So people are like, oh, look at the universities are teaching critical theory. Yeah, they're doing that. 
But let's look at something that we make fun of universities for that actually is uh, much more harmful than you might think. Uh, post, post Rittenhouse, post the Rittenhouse verdict, you saw universities, colleges, even school districts around the country, um, probably businesses, I didn't see that, but probably, uh, offering uh, therapy and safe spaces and, and counseling for people to recover from the trauma of the Rittenhouse verdict. So traumatic. So, so traumatic. A short list of some of these. San Francisco State University, University of Wisconsin, University of California, Rosemont College, Ohio University, Vanderbilt, University of Michigan Medical Schools, Stanford Medicine and Stanford Law. Stanford Law. We should do a show on some Stanford Law crap someday. Ugh. That's the Kimberly Crenshaw is home base. Uh, Columbia Business School, Brandeis University, Pepperdine University, NYU, and even party schools like UC Santa Cruz, all of them. And there's more. That's just some of the ones I saw. And most of us read these these tweets or whatever. We read this stuff and we kind of laugh and roll our eyes and like, you, you know, you fragile snowflakes, you need your safe spaces because Rittenhouse is innocent. It's just so stupid, right? Um, but sometimes we are hesitant to criticize this more deeply and say, stop offering this. Because it seems like the answer would be, well, we're just offering help. What's wrong with offering help? You might think that no one needs it, but you know, some people are traumatized and they may need it. There's a hidden premise here in, in the help that they offer, and I want to talk about it because uh, it's important and it happens a lot. And it happens not just with psychological services that they offer, but it happens with other stuff. And that hidden premise here is that some trauma-inducing event has occurred. And I'm going to give an example that I give in parenting sometime. Uh, so the parents in chat will know this. If, if you've ever seen a kid, if you've ever had like had a kid, raised a kid, or seen other someone else raise a kid, you should relate to this. Um, you see a toddler. When toddlers are learning to walk, they often fall or whatever. They're kind of these dis, you know, discombobulated, you know, uncoordinated messes. Um, and they get very excited. So falling and stuff like that happens a lot. And if you're at a playground sitting on the side and you see you see your kid fall or a kid fall, you'll notice that one of the first things they do when they first start falling, eventually they get uh, eventually they get uh, habitualized to do one thing or another, which we'll talk about. But when they first start falling, what you'll see them do, is they'll immediately look up to their parent. They'll look at their parent from across the playground or whatever. And they're waiting to see how their parent interpreted what just happened. They fell down, probably hurt a little bit or there's some discomfort. They look up and wait to see what happens with the parent. Now, a neurotic parent assumes that falling down is so horribly traumatic that they react instantly to soothe the kid, right? They're all, oh, honey, are you okay? <laughs> they go crazy. That's what a neurotic parent does. And what does the kid do? The kid sees that, and the kid, you can, you can, I've seen it on kids' faces. You've watched this. They see the parent freak out, and they internalize the freak out, and they go, oh, I guess something's wrong. I must have been traumatized. They start bawling, and they start crying. And of course, the result here is you're training the child to be fragile. 
you're teaching them that trauma, that uh, falling is traumatic, a traumatic event. And now they're uh, more emotionally damaged by everyday failures and discomfort. For, like falling is a normal thing, right? The other thing you can do, you see sometimes is the kid looks up at the parent and the parent doesn't react at all. They just watch and look, this is what I would do. They, they just watch and look at the child. Right now, obviously, if the child actually is upset, then you like if they're already crying or already like they maybe really hurt themselves when you go soothe them or whatever. But at first they look up and they look at you and I just look back at them. You just watch them. And nine times out of 10, the child will pick themselves right back up, be completely fine. And the lesson they'll take away from this is that, well, everyday failures happen. There's little discomforts and they're not traumatic. They don't need. They don't need special counseling or kisses and hugs from mommy or whatever. They're just, they, things happen. You fall down while you're trying to learn to walk. It's not a big deal, right? Obviously, there's a third option, I guess, which is you could be a, a completely cold-hearted parent and not soothe them even when they are actually in pain and something's going on, and then they'll feel abandoned and blah, blah, blah. That's not healthy, but it's not relevant to what we're talking about. So anyway, um, when institutions act like this, when they say, oh, do you need counseling for this traumatic event? It's the equivalent of a neurotic parent freaking out at the play yard, playground saying like, oh my God, are you okay? Ah! Right? That's what that is. And it reinforces and encourages emotional fragility in students. That's one of the bad things it does. The other thing it does is just like on the playground where the student learns that, oh, falling and hitting my knee is a traumatic event. Like that's, I didn't know it was, but apparently it's a big deal, right? Um, students notice what the institution views as traumatizing and what the institution doesn't, right? So um, when they're offering like full-blown therapy and safe spaces, that's very clear. They view that as very traumatizing. But even small comments or jabs or jokes from faculty and staff about, oh, that was, you know, we all had some trauma from the Trump election or whatever. Like even little things like that signal to people what is a traumatic and upsetting event and what isn't a traumatic and, and upsetting event, Right. And so they learn what one ought to be upset about and outraged about and one, what one ought not to be outraged and upset about. So, you know, Biden's elected. That's not upsetting. Nope. Trump's elected. Yep. Upsetting and outrageous. Uh, the Waukesha massacre. No, you don't even have to know about that. That's not upsetting. Don't need safe spaces or anything. The Charlottesville killing. Totally. You need safe spaces for that. Yep. That's trauma. All right. A Bernie... A Bernie supporter shoots some Republicans at a baseball game. Nope, don't even need to mention it. A Trump supporter smiles at a Native American. We need safe spaces and puppies to cuddle because it was so traumatic. Right? A five times pedophile burns a community, uh, uses the N word, threatens people to threatens to kill people, screams at them. Uh, was that the trauma traumatic part of Kenosha? No. What was the traumatic part? Kyle Rittenhouse defended himself against a, a violent, angry mob. That's the thing that's traumatic, right? No one seems to be traumatized that Alec Baldwin killed someone, right? Not a big deal. AOC gets elected, not trauma. Marjorie Taylor Greene gets elected, trauma. Um, and and there's even, you know, you also see it in how they treat professors. Um, there was a professor at uh, Rutgers. Brittany Cooper, I think is her name. Professor of Women's and Gender Studies. Uh, and Africana studies, uh, who said, I mean, she's made some vile remarks uh, on national television, things like white people are, quote, committed to being villains, 
and we should take them out. Is that traumatizing? Do you need safe spaces for that? No. But Brett Weinstein makes some benign comment about how white people shouldn't be forced off of campus. And oh my God, yes, that's a traumatizing event. We need to have the, the dean apologize and safe spaces and I don't know what else they had. So what an institution signals as traumatizing or not traumatizing sets an ethos. It orients a student's moral compass. And it is one of the methods of indoctrination. Indoctrination isn't just you take a class and they teach you all about critical race theory and say a bunch of racist stuff, or they tell you that there's an infinite number of genders explicitly and that's on your homework assignment. Like, sure, that's a form of indoctrination. But another method of indoctrination is this. It's how they treat events as, as trauma, traumatizing events, or non-traumatizing events, right? Um, I remember after 9-11... Um, I was in San Francisco and I, I had occasion to go to San Francisco State University's campus for something. And the people, what they were upset about was the backlash against Muslims in the U.S. I mean, it was literally like a week or two later. I mean, it was like right after the event. But that's what they were outraged about. They were, you know, they were, I don't know if they were offering safe spaces, but there was the coddling that was being done there was all about, oh, are you traumatized that those stupid Americans are mad at Muslims? Not, are you traumatized that two icons of New York City were destroyed along with 3,000 people? All right. I'm going to check for chat. I'm going to check comments here in chat and see if anyone wants to. Uh, anyone's got any complaints about any of this? Levi, so, oh, Pirate Tomsky says Levi Strauss did trauma sessions for Rittenhouse. Yeah. I don't buy Levi Strauss jeans, not for that reason, although that's a good reason. Um, if you'll notice, they put the loopholes in places that make it impossible to, to wear a holster. Um, I think it's intentional. I'm a conspiracy theorist. I think they do it intentionally, bastards. So, um, yeah, N don't buy Levi's Strauss. Okay. So now we're going to talk about the last thing, which is a, granted a bit longer, but I'm kind of fascinated by it, and I have to read something, which I apologize in advance for, but I think it's really interesting, and you'll you'll like it, or at least you'll be interested in it. So there is a right wing journalist pundit in France by the name of Eric Zemmour. He probably says Eric Zemmour, something like that. Who knows? Uh, he's been a journalist and, and a pundit for a while. And I think it was yesterday or recently he announced his candidacy for president of France. Um, now, before I read what I'm about to read, let me just give you some background I don't pay a lot of attention to France, but let's just kind of recap what we know about what's been going on in France. So um, there have been mass protests. Uh, I think last year, or it was the yellow vests, right? They were protesting fuel taxes and cost of living increases. Um, more recently, there's been huge protests about the health pass, which is basically a vaccination passport, a COVID passport thing. 
lots of lots of protests about them. Huge, huge protests. Of course, you don't read them on CNN. You don't hear about it on CNN because, you know. Um, there's also been a massive transformation of French culture in the past several years. Um, France, France has the largest number of uh, Muslims in the Western world. They have a lot of immigration. Most of their migration is from Northwest Africa, West Africa, and Middle Eastern countries. Uh, of course, some of those countries used to be colonized by France, so um, they have a relationship there. Um, and a lot of these immigrants, obviously not all of them, but most of them, um, most of them tend to be less educated, uh, underemployed to a larger extent than the French population. And they have pretty divergent beliefs from the French population. Um, for example, 17% of the French population thinks that rel their religious beliefs are more important than the values of the French Republic. Okay. So they're mostly French, a little bit religious. Doesn't matter what you think about that. That's what French is, France is like. But for the immigrant population, it's 46% said their religious beliefs are more important than the values of the French Republic. It's a big difference. 65% um, of them do not believe that homosexuality is morally acceptable. Um, in a survey, this is from Wikipedia, I'll read. In a survey published by the French Daily Le Monde, indicated that only 26% of French respondents believed that Islam was compatible with French society, compared to 89% identifying Catholicism as compatible and 75% identifying Judaism as compatible. Okay, so that's happening. Specifically in Paris, um, the concentration uh, of the immigrant population is higher in Paris. I think 20% of the population is roughly immigrants in Paris, and 41.3% of people under 20 have at least one immigrant parent. Um, there have been Islamic terrorist attacks that we've seen. Um, a lot of these immigrants are living in the street. Um, there's migrant camps that are overrunning large parts of the city. Uh, many people have complained about, you know, the quaint Paris streets not being the same as they used to be. Um, there's uh, Islamic no-go zones in Paris. And there's a mass perception now that crime has gone up. Now, I tried to get some stats on it. It's certainly true that violent sexual crimes have gone up. They've gone way up. Um, the French government kind of hides a lot of detail. It's not, it's not very easy to find Parisian crime rates, but there has been an overall decline uh, of violent crime in France over the past several decades, but that decline has slowed recently. I don't know what the reason for that is or whatever. We don't have really any data, but the point is there is nevertheless, I think something like 70% of the population thinks that crime is like a number one concern right now. So this is the mood of the French people. They're kind of concerned about this stuff. All right. So I'm going to read this guy, this guy, Eric Zimor. I'm going to read to you a translation of his speech. Um, obviously, I'm not in complete agreement with everything in his speech, and you'll see anyone who knows me and hears what I have to say generally will know that when they hear the speech. But I want to read it because I think it's important in that it represents a backlash uh, against the woke culture. Um, and in some ways, it's the overcorrection from the right that I've said I've been concerned about. But it, but it's a pretty mild form of overcorrection. That said, the guy is a fan of Bonaparte. So, you know, he, he, he likes Napoleon. 
So maybe maybe he could be a strongman. I, I don't know much about him. Um, but regardless of that, it is well-written. Um, and I think it resonates emotionally with a, what a lot of people are feeling, not just in France, but around the world. It's an emo- it emotionally resonates with people. Um, and this will give me a segue to talk about culture because I want to talk cult- talk about culture a little bit. And culture is a central element in his theme. Um, it's been a while since I had a conversation about culture. Uh, I did write about it about two and a half years ago. I wrote a, I wrote an article about, um, well, prompted by the New Zealand Christ shooter, uh, he, he cited loss of culture, specifically actually in France, as one of his motivations. Uh, and I wrote a three-part article about this uh, a while ago. I'll, I'll put links in. So I, I want to I wanna read this to you because I think it's important that you hear what's being said. Uh, I'm going to credit uh, a guy on Twitter, uh, Malmesbury Man, who did the translation from French to English. I apologize in advance to anyone who speaks French uh, for my mispronunciations. My high school French is pretty horrible. It's not that long of a speech, but it is a speech, so I'm going to read it. Strap in. My dear countrymen, for years, the same feeling has swept you along, oppressed you, shamed you, a strange and penetrating feeling of dispossession. You walk down the streets in your towns, and you don't recognize them. You look at your screens, and they speak to you in a language that is strange and in the end, foreign. You turn your eyes and ears to advertisements, TV series, football matches, films, live performances, songs, and the school books of your children. You take the subways and trains. You go to train stations and airports. You wait for your sons and your daughters outside their school. You take your mother to the emergency room. You stand in line at the post office or the employment agency. You wait at a police station or a courthouse. And you have the impression that you are no longer in a country that you know. You remember the country of your childhood. You remember the country that your parents told you about. You remember the country found in films and books, the country of Joan of Arc and Louis XIV, the country of Bonaparte and General de Gaulle, the country of knights and ladies, the country of Victor Hugo and Chateaubriand, the country of Pascal and Descartes, the country of the fables of La Fontaine, the characters of Molière and the verses of Racine, the country of Notre Dame de Paris and the village church towers, the country of Gavroche and Cosette, the country of Barricades and Versailles, the country of Pasteur and Lavoisier, the country of Voltaire and Rousseau, of Clemenceau and the soldiers of 14, of de Gaulle and Jean Moulin, the country of Gabin and Delon, or Doulon, I don't know how to say that, of Bridget Bardot and Belmondo, and Johnny Dasnavour, and Brossens, and Barbara, and the films of Sauté, and Vernuy. This country, at the same time lighthearted and illustrious, this country, at the same time literary and scientific, this country, truly intelligent and one of a kind, the country of the Concord and nuclear power, the country that invented cinema and the automobile, this country that you search for everywhere with dismay. No, 
Your children are homesick without even having known this country that you cherish, and it is disappearing. You haven't left, and yet you have the feeling of no longer being at home. You have not left your country. Your country left you. You smell foreigners in your own country. You are internal exiles. For a long time, you believed you were the only one to see, to hear, to think, to doubt. You were afraid to say it. You were ashamed of your feelings. For a long time, you dared not say what you are seeing, and above all, you dared not see what you were seeing. And then you said it to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to your father, to your mother, to your friends, to your co-workers, to your neighbors, and then to strangers. And you understood that your feeling of dispossession was shared by everyone. France is no longer France, and everyone sees it. Of course, they despised you, the powerful, the elites, the conformists, the journalists, the politicians, the professors, the sociologists, the union bosses, the religious authorities. They told you it's all a ploy, it's all fake, it's all wrong. But you understood in time that it was them who were a ploy, them who had it all wrong, them who did you wrong. The disappearance of our civilization is not the only question that harasses us, although it towers over everything. Immigration is not the cause of all of our problems, although it aggravates everything. The third worlding of our country and our people impoverishes as much as it disintegrates, ruins as much as it torments. It's why you have a hard time making ends meet. It's why we must reindustrialize France. It's why we must equalize the balance of trade. It's why we must reduce our growing debt, bring back to France our, com our companies that left, give jobs to our unemployed. It's why we must protect our technological marvels and stop selling them to foreigners. It's why we must allow our small businesses to live and to grow and to pass from generation to generation. It's why we must preserve our architectural, cultural, and natural heritage. It's why we must restore our Republican education, its excellence in its beliefs in merit, and stop surrendering our children to the experiments of egalitarians and pedagogists and the Dr. Strangeloves of gender theory and Islamo-leftism. It's why we must take back our sovereignty, abandoned to European technocrats and judges who rob the French people of the ability to control their destiny in the name of a fantasy, a Europe that will never be a nation. Yes, we must give power to the people, take it back from the minority that unceasingly tyrannizes the majority, and from judges who substitute their judicial rulings for government of the people, for the people, by the people. For decades, our elected officials in the of the right and the left have led us down this dire path of decline and decadence. Right and left have lied and concealed the gravity of our diminishment. They have hidden from you the reality of our replacement. You have known me for many years. You know what I say, what I diagnose, what I proclaim. I have long been content with the role of journalist, writer, Cassandra, whistleblower. Back then, I believed that a politician would take up the flame that I had lit. I said to myself, to each his own job, to each his own role, to each his own fight. I have lost this illusion. Like you, I have lost confidence. Like you, I have decided to take our destiny in hand. I saw that no politician had the courage to save our country from the tragic fate that awaits it. I saw that all these supposed professionals were, above all, impotent. That President Macron, who had presented himself as an outsider, was in fact the synthesis of his two predecessors, or worse. 
that all the parties were contenting themselves with reforms while time passes them by. There is no more time to reform France, but there is time to save her. That is why I've decided to run for president. I have decided to ask your votes to become your president of the Republic so that our children and grandchildren do not know barbarism, so that our daughters are not veiled and our sons are not forced to submit, so that we can bequeath to them the France we have known and that we, have, that we received from our ancestors, so that we can still preserve our way of life, our traditions, our language, our conversations, our debates about history and fashion, our taste for literature and food, so that the French remain French, proud of their past and confident in their future, so that the French once again feel at home, so that the newest arrivals assimilate their culture, adapt their history, and are remade as French in France, not foreigners in an unknown land. We the French are a great nation, a great people. Our glorious past pleads for our future. Our soldiers have conquered Europe and the world. Our writers and artists have aroused universal admiration. Our scientific discoveries and industrial production have stamped their epochs. The charm of our art de vivre excites, excites longing and joy in all who taste it. We have known great victories and we have overcome cruel defeats. For a thousand years, we have been one of the powers who have written, history, written the history of the world. We are worthy of our ancestors. We will not allow ourselves to be mastered, vassalized, conquered, colonized. We will not allow ourselves to be replaced. In front of us, a cold and determined monster rises up who seeks to dishonor us. Dishonor us. They will say that you are racist. They will say that you are motivated by contemptible passions, when in fact it is the most lovely passion that animates you, passion for France. They will say the worst about me, but I will keep going amidst the jeers, and I don't care if they spit on me. I will never bend the head for we have a mission to accomplish. The French people have been intimidated, crippled, indoctrinated, blamed, but they lift up their heads, they drop their masks, they clear the air of lies, they hunt down these evil perjuries. We are going to carry France on. We are going to pursue the beautiful and noble French adventure. We are going to pass the flame to the coming generations. Join with me, rise up. We, the French, have always triumphed over all. Long live the Republic and above all, Long live France. Whew. I need a drink after that. What do you guys think of that? I know you can't answer in real time. Sometimes I wish you could just shout out. I can post the speech, Therese. Um, so I want to make some comments about it. As I said, obviously I don't agree with everything and we're going to talk, we're going to talk about a, a few things that I think, um, maybe he gets wrong or, or whatever, but the, the gist of this is, first of all, it's, like I said, I think it's very well written. It's very emotionally impactful and he's basically the only major candidate standing up to the left. Pirate Tomsky says based. Yeah, it's based. I don't know how to say based in French, but that's what it is. So I want to make a few notes. First of all, um, he references something called the Great Replacement. Um, and this is um, this is a notion that the mainstream media will dub as conspiracy theory and um, a radical like white nationalist 
right wing conspiracy theory. Um, but the Great Replacement is the notion. Uh, there's a few. There's a few pillars of this notion. One is it's the notion that Native European fertility rates are below the 2.1 uh, needed for sustaining a population. That's true. That's true. It's based on the idea that Muslim immigrant populations from outside of Europe are moving to Europe and breeding at much higher rates. That is also true. It's also based on the idea that Native Europeans will eventually, within a decade or two, become minorities in Europe. That's also true, by math. Now, it's also based on this idea that if these immigrants and their families do not assimilate to European culture, then the demographic shift will also result in a massive uh, cultural shift, which one can expect then to lead to a political shift, obviously. Um, and, I mean, that's not provable, but it seems pretty likely, based on the stats that I read you above about how a lot of these Muslim immigrants view their religion versus Frenchness, right? Um so it seems pretty likely, given that, and given the reluctance to uh, of leaders to encourage assimilation. In fact, they discourage assimilation often. So given that, that's kind of a reasonable guess that not only will the Native Europeans become a minority, but their culture will be replaced. Um, and there's one additional element to the conspiracy theory part of this, which is that European elites are in on this and approve of it. I don't know, but it's probably true because they have to know about it. Um, but the elites in the mainstream media, they'll say this is a conspiracy theory. They don't argue with the data. You never hear them say, well, that's not true. Uh, fertility rates are higher. And they never talk about any of that. Um, they, they Not only do they not argue with the data, actually, the elites don't collect the data, or at least they don't report it if they do. They don't provide any data that would refute this argument. They could. I mean, they're the government. They have data or they could collect it. They don't. They hide data that might disprove or prove this argument. So we know it's probably true. Um, but they do claim it's a conspiracy theory because they say, well, it's silly to think the elites are involved. That's their, their, their debunking of it is, is it's silly to think the elites are involved. I don't think that's silly and it doesn't really matter in any way, does it? Um, however, a lot of Muslim leaders have been talking about this openly. I'm going to quote Muammar Gaddafi from two, 2006 before Hillary Clinton had him murdered. Um, he says, there are signs that Allah will grant victory to Islam in Europe without swords, without guns, without conquest. We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicide bombers. The 50 plus million Muslims in Europe will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. And of course, if you go, if you go Google, there's plenty of imams who say the same thing. They know very, they're very aware of this. They're very aware of this. It's only the European elite who claim it's a conspiracy theory and crazy. All right. Now, of course, you'll be called a racist and a xenophobe for talking about this. I'm sure I'll get called that. Um, this isn't about race. It's about culture. <clears throat> um, Zamora might conflate race and culture. I'm not sure. I don't know him well. But um, the cultural shifts are worth discussing here. Um, and um, I, I will post a link to the articles that I mentioned before where I discuss some of this stuff um, from a couple of years ago. But I, before we get into it, I just want to note that the number one enemy of Western culture is not Islam or Muslim immigration. 
The number one enemy is our own institutions, especially academia. They have been destroying the West for decades or longer. They are the enemy. The enemy is within. But to the extent that mass immigration in Europe can help these enemies in the West accelerate their plans to uh, dismantle Western culture, it's worth discussing. All right, so before I get into what is culture, I'm gonna, there's a, at least one super chat that I missed. I think it's just one, but let me just double check here. Uh, sorry, it's gonna take a sec. Um, I think I got this before, but maybe I didn't. I'll fight you naked said, yep, fragilization of kids is a real thing. Um, he's talking about what the university discussion we had earlier. I don't know that fragilization is a word, but I like the word. I'll fight you naked. It's a good word. Uh, Pirate Tomsky says, the globalists will disagree with his views of nationality, so mainstream media will attack and call him racist. Classic tactic. Yeah, I fully expect that. Um, G-Man says, was this speech about immigration? I thought it was about Wokies taking over the culture. Uh, well, this was his presidential announcement. I mean, clearly, uh, I think he's known for criticizing immigration a lot. So, um, but it looks like it's about a little, I read it, I see a little bit of both. I see some criticism from of the, the internal Wokies, but I also see clearly uh, a lot of conversation about immigration. Um, one more Pirate Tomsky says, so Carter, will the next world war be against Islamists and communists, both state, both total state control with very different philosophies? Uh, you could see the commies and the Islamists uh, being a, maintaining a, a cold war or a world war. I, you could see that. Um, the Islamists don't have enough power unless they take over Europe, though. Um, so they would have to do that. All right, so let's get into what is culture. Um, because he talks about saving France. And let's notice some things that he throws in here. He throws in the concept of merit-based education and anti-egalitarianism. He throws in sovereignty from the EU. He throws in architecture and the arts. Uh, he throws in French food, right? Um, he throws in things like our way of life, our traditions, our language, all that. He's, it's all one big package. And it turns out culture is actually, the concept of culture is actually kind of a vague, vague concept. Let's see if I can pull up. I can. I'm going to pull up. It's time for the definition part of the day. Let's pull up the definition of culture from the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, <clears throat> all right. Hopefully you can all see that. Let's, uh, we have to scroll down to like, it, it's got a, it's got like biology cultures and that kind of stuff. So let's scroll down to something that's relevant. If we look at 7A, it's kind of relevant. The distinctive ideas, customs, social behavior, products, or way of life of a particular nation, society, people, or period. That's pretty broad, right? That's that's a big, that's a big thing. It's kind of big, right? It's kind of big. Uh, I don't, I don't have this in front of me, but I did previously look up um, in another dictionary. I don't remember which one it was. It was probably Merriam-Webster or something, and it said the culture is culture is the quality of a society that arises from a concern for what is regarded as excellent in the arts, letters, manners scholarly pursuits, etc. I love when dictionaries have etc. thrown in there. That's good. Yeah, etc. Um, I think it's helpful to break down the concept of culture into 
three components speaks. I think it's a package deal in many ways. Um, I think it's uh, it it probably should be multiple words or or there should be should be some clarity because it means different things. And I think culture is. I think there's three components to culture, and they matter differently. One is there's shared philosophic premises, right? Um, and let's just walk through metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics super quickly, right? Obviously, if you're surrounded by people in a culture who believe um, that they're literally living in the matrix, um, or that this is literally a simulation, and they behave that way, that's their fundamental belief about metaphysics, metaphysical reality. They will behave differently than you might if you believe this is my one life and I got it and I'm here in reality. Like, it's going to be hard to agree on anything, right? Um, if that's kind of where they're coming from, if their metaphysics are diametrically opposed. Um, epistemology, right? Uh, if there's not some sort of shared epistemology, right? If you're in a culture um, where, let, let's say, let's say you primarily think that we should appeal to reason um, when, you know, when someone's on trial, things need to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Um, reason is kind of used as a, as a, at least paid lip service to, but used as the metric. This is the epistemological standard. But of course, if we throw you in a culture where, um, you know, the shaman's feelings about what the sun god wants is the standard, um, and what you do in a trial is, you know, you or you, <laughs> what's that, um, that Monty Python movie, right? You, you, to find out if she's a witch, you see if she weighs the same as a duck, right? Like, that's that kind of epistemology cannot coexist with reason um, in a culture for long. Um, and ethics, obviously, ethics matter, right? Um, ethics are, I think, ethics rely on metaphysics and epistemology. Um, but, you know, are you going to, let's just talk about Islam for a minute. Are you going to stone gays and adulterers or, like, are women subhuman or not? Like, what are the, what are the ethical rules? Right, so a culture has some shared philosophic premises. It doesn't mean everyone shares them all the time, but they're generally shared. To the extent that they're shared, there's cultural cohesion. To the extent that they're not shared, um, there's fracturing. So philosophic premises, which if you know me, you'll guess that's what I think is the most important part of culture, right? Uh, another area is shared aesthetic preferences. Um, I put aesthetics outside the exclusive purview of philosophy. I know aesthetics is classically under the um, umbrella of philosophy. I separate it. I've written an article about why I separate it, why I think it should include psychology. I can link to that. But shared aesthetic preferences are things like food, art, etc. right? You know, you say, let's go get some Thai food. No one expects you uh, to go get tacos, right? Like there's a, you know what Thai food is. It's a particular type of cultural food. Um, and the third kind of, the third category of culture, the third uh, component of culture, I guess is a better word, is what I'm going to call evolved cooperative strategies. And these are arbitrary, but they're shared. So it doesn't, they don't matter what they are, but they do need to be shared. Um, so some example of these. Uh, language. Right. It doesn't matter what we call, you know, this it's a glass of water. It doesn't matter as long as we all call it a glass of water. You know, we can't you can't use different words for it very easily. 
Um, the, the story that comes to mind is the, the biblical story of the Tower of Babel, right? When they were, they all spoke one language, they were going to accomplish this thing by building a tower to heaven. God, for some reason, was nervous about their success there uh, and decided the way to stop them was to have them speak different languages, right? He fractured their culture, their ability to cooperate and achieve anything. He fractured their unity by arbitrarily, arbitrarily assigning uh, language. They have different languages. Um, manners is another example of evolved cooperative strategies, right? In, in Japan, slurping your soup shows that you like it. It's like a good, it's rude here in America. Um, but in Japan, you slop that, slurp it up. That's how the chef knows you like it. Right. Um, or finishing your food again in Japan, it's rude to leave food on your plate. Right. It, if you leave food on your plate in Japan, uh, it implies that like it wasn't delicious or whatever. The chef kind of sucks. and You don't want to finish it. But just across the water in China. It's rude if you eat it all. Because it implies that the host didn't give you enough food and you're still hungry. Completely different. Totally arbitrary. Completely different. Right. Another one that I think matters uh, maybe a little bit more. Um, existentially like there's it it really makes a difference is um just personal interactions personal space things like that so um you know if you if you're out in line and someone's standing too close or communicating in a certain way or like maybe their body language maybe they're touching you in weird ways to communicate that might be normal in their culture but it might be a red flag in your culture that there's something creepy or wrong like the the way that we interact is um in what we consider personal space and acceptable behavior and and physical contact or not and word choice and all that kind of stuff um subjects that we talk about right uh you know if you if you turn around to someone in line at the supermarket and say how much money do you make a year like that's a completely inappropriate weird question right but it might not be in other places so um manners are these arbitrary um arbitrary cooperative strategies. So, so again, for me, the, when I, when I think about separating culture into, into what really is culture, it's the shared philosophical premises, the shared aesthetic preferences, and these evolved, these evolved cooperative strategies that are shared. Right. Um, I guess if we had to do the definition thing, uh, <laughs> where we place the word culture in a hierarchy, again, I don't like it because it's a very broad thing, but we could say, well, it belongs to, I guess it belongs to the category of like common or shared characteristics or attributes of a particular group of people. And it's differentiated from other characteristics and attributes by the fact that it's philosophic, aesthetic, and social strategies for mutual cooperation, like as opposed to, I don't know, they're all short or something like that. Um, I guess that's how we would maybe fit it in our hierarchy. But obviously, I'm going to argue that the most critical to, uh, aspects of a culture to preserve are the philosophic premises, right? Um, assuming that you have better philosophic premises than the incoming culture. I mean, uh, I don't like the philosophic premises of Islam um, compared to even the mediocre ones of France, right? Uh, so, you know, I think France has got better ones. I think preserving them is a good idea. Um, because those those premises derive uh, 
they they function to to um they drive behavior in law and in politics they they help set up rules i mean that's they're ultimately they're what get codified into law um in fact you know one of the even not codifying them into law is a premise right there's the in in america we used to i don't think we talk about it too much more but anymore but we used to say things like well you can't legislate morality well that's a that's a philosophic belief that we shouldn't right like we shouldn't try and do that we should leave people alone but that itself is a belief that has a, an effect on politics not everyone has that belief um and again not everyone has to share all these premises but to the extent that they're shared you get a unified culture to the extent that they're not you get a fractured culture and at some point if the culture is too fractured it can't hold together um, and, you know, also, you know, obviously ethics are more important than aesthetics and arbitrary cooperation strategies, right? Human life can flourish in an individualist society with, with good individualist ethics, regardless of whether you have to clean your plate or not when you're at someone's house or regardless of what language you speak or whether you eat sweet potato prior, pie or creme brulee or whatever it is you eat, right? Whether you call, you know, weird pink jello things a salad, that stuff doesn't matter. Um, a human life can flourish if the the if the ethics are are individualist ethics. But human life can't flourish in an anti-human atmosphere of of collectivism. Um, the Soviet Union's problem was not the Russian language or the fact that they that they drank vodka. That wasn't their problem. Here, I'm going to play. Let's see if anyone can guess. This is going to be the second reference to this tonight. See if anyone, I just feel like doing this. See if anyone can guess what this is from. Damn it, I think it was echoing. Sorry about that. Have you ever seen a commie drink water? Was the clip I was trying to play. They only drink vodka. Sorry, it didn't work out. I couldn't get that clip going. Someone tell me where that's from. Mandrake, you ever seen a commie drink water? It's vodka they drink. Isn't that right? All right. Anyway, um, look, you know, you might, of course, you might care about some of these uh, shared aesthetic preferences, right? And evolved cooperative strategies. You might love your language. Uh, you might really like the food or whatever. Um, someone's a DJ Carter. Apparently not. I'm never going to get a job, a job as a DJ. I can't work the mixer. So there you have it. Um, oh, you know, I think I know why. But anyway. I'm not going to do it again. Uh, so you you know might you might share you might care about the shared aesthetics and that kind of things, but those aren't the existential threat, right? Um, and of course, those kind of things shouldn't have anything to do with government. Um, they those kind of things, manners and whatever, they can be easily enforced through social norms or not. If you want to adopt a new way of doing things or a new food that comes in, you can adopt that or not adopt it. Um, you don't need the government to be involved. But an ideology that is fundamentally in opposition to your shared philosophic premises is dangerous. It's very dangerous. And it's why 
assimilation is important. I think this is one thing this guy gets right. He mentions that they need that people coming in need to assimilate to be French um, and not foreigners in a foreign country. Um, and right now, I don't know specifically what France is doing, but I'm going to guess. I, I know a little bit and then what a lot of Western countries are doing. Uh, they're using tax dollars to provide aid. They're offering services in native languages. They're writing laws to protect the belief system uh, of of Muslim immigrants from criticism. Like in France, you can't criticize belief systems in other countries as well. Um, they offer up public property, which itself is an anti-concept. Maybe we'll cover someday. But they offer up public property, not for its alleged or intended use, but as campgrounds for people who haven't assimilated. Um, they refuse to collect stats that might implicate the immigrant population in the eyes of the French people. So the government is subsidizing non-assimilation. They're encouraging and promoting and making assimilation harder. They're making it easier to not assimilate. They're trying to help people not assimilate. That's all the government involvement. That's all the use of force is involved in all of that, collecting the tax dollars, um, like all of that stuff. This is the government's involvement. So. The question is, what will become of Eric Zemmour? Uh, you know, I think the French people are being offered a, a choice between the willful and continued destruction of France by the elites. That's their, the main choice they've had on the one hand. And on the other hand, they have this package deal. Um, this package deal that comes from Eric, which is, protection from this outside philosophic threat. And it's got a maybe a dose of Bonapartism, if that's a thing, national, like Bonaparte nationalism in it. It's got a dose of some nationalism in it, um, which obviously I don't, I don't support some of that. But he's the only guy offering protection from this outside philosophic threat. And he's doing it in a very compelling and principled way. No major figure that I'm aware of, I've not seen any of this, no major figure is speaking in terms of individualism. And the French have never really understood liberty or individualism to begin with, uh, which is going to be another story for another day. They, they've never, I mean, just look, look you know, <laughs> anyone who puts liberté and égalité, égalité in, in the same thing together is like, they don't get it. They never understood it. The French Revolution was a mess because they never stood, they never understood individualism. Um, so it's not surprising that there's no major French politicians speaking in terms of individualism. But this guy's the only one offering to save France. And I'm gonna pay attention in the next few months because uh I'm very curious as what the French people they are, there's a lot of discontent, and I'm very curious to see what they will decide to do. Um, and whether they will take his uh take him up in his offer. So all right, who wins? All right, even though I didn't play it, should I try and play the clip again in chat before I award the prize? It's not really a prize. I don't know what I'm going to award. I'll, I'll award kudos to whoever wants to guess what that quote was that I was trying to. I was trying to play the clip. I'm going to do it. No one's here to stop me. I'm going to be awkward, and there's going to be awkward silence, and I'm going to pause and do this. You guys can't hear that, can you? That didn't work. All right, I give up. I'm never going to be a DJ, and I'm not going to play the clip. Sorry. I'll just award kudos. Sorry about all that. I don't know why. I don't know why I can't work my mixer, but I just I, I get boomer, boomer award for that one. All right. 
It is Dr. Strangelove. So whoever said Dr. Strangelove gets the prize. It was B. Allen and Tree Surgeon both said Dr. Strangelove. Someone thought it was Reagan. Nope, not Reagan. Although that's a funny one. Uh, yeah. G-Man says, where's Beverly? I would like to blame her. I would like to blame her, but alas, I cannot. I cannot blame her for this. So anyway, that's all we've got for tonight. Um, I don't see anything in chat that I need to address, so I'm gonna gonna close it out. I'm just scrolling through to see if there's anything else. Burping after a meal, says Greg the Periton. Yeah, that's another one, right? That's another one. Uh, Pirate Tomsky has got a super chat for us. He says, nailed it. And the same as in the UK. People are fleeing tyranny and moving to the West, yet bringing the very ideals which cause tyranny with them. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I get that there are moderate Muslims in the world. I mean, we have one on the show often, a Sufi Muslim named Cameron Pasha. He's great. But if you look at any of the... <laughs> any of the major Muslim countries, any of the Muslim countries run by Muslims, they're pretty oppressive and pretty horrible. And the countries that these people are coming from into Europe are not, these are not Cameron Pashas coming to be great screenwriters, Sufi Muslims in, in France. That's not what's happening. Um, so, you know, it is a real problem. All right. As a reminder, everyone, I'm making a list and I'm checking it twice. So if you want to be on the naughty side of the list, which is the more fun side, you need to go oppress that subscribe button. Um, give it some jabs. I want to special thanks. want to give a special thanks to everyone who supports the show. Um, get your name in the credits and some other cool stuff by supporting the show monetarily, which you can do at unsafespace.com. As always... As always, uh, I like suggestions, feedback, that kind of stuff. Uh, I do appreciate that conversation uh, that we sometimes have. People make great comments on YouTube. Uh, sometimes it turns into a show. Sometimes I just argue on the in the comment area. But um, yeah, I do appreciate it. All right, have a good night, everyone. I think I think that's it. Let's see if I can press the end credits without Beverly. I can see who needs her. I don't know. She could have got that clip playing anyway. Maybe she couldn't. I'm going to contend that she couldn't. Have a good one, everyone. We will see you on Friday for Kofefi break. I forget who's on, or I would tell you. Uh, but have a good night. Take care. Vive la France. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. 
The content of this production has not been authorized by Dr. Fauci. All praise be to his name. The following co-conspirators have been asking too many questions. You know what to do. Once the Maxwell trial is over, we promise there will be no more pedophiles among the ruling class. Just one more job to combat the Zeta variant. Oops I mean the Omicron variant. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.